Lord, that is our, our prayer, all of us who belong to Christ and, and are your children through faith in him, that you would bind us to you. In fact, that's what you've done. We believe you when you say that you make promises that are everlasting, that never fail, that never wear out, that you'll be a God to us, to our children, to our children's children, to every generation of those who fear you. Lord, we, by your grace, want to take you at your word again this morning and ask that you would, as the God who has bound himself to us through the blood of Jesus Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit, that you would again draw us nearer to Christ, that you would deepen our fellowship with you, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, that you would make us children with open ears, that you would make us servants who are gladly obedient to your, to your word, that you would make us ambassadors for Christ in this world. And Lord, we pray that you would open up your word to us, that you would send your Holy Spirit here, that your word would run all around this room and would find its way into every heart, into every mind, that it would work its way out into every life, that not one person here would resist you, that not one person here would have a hardened heart, but that all of us, all of us alike, would be like soft clay and that you would do with us what you will. Lord, it is a wonderful thing to think what could be if you would answer that prayer. The glory that could come to your name, the work that could be done for Christ, the the work that could be done for your kingdom, if every person in every chair in this room would walk out from here saying, yes, Lord, we are listening, we want to serve you. And so, Lord, we pray that would be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Our scripture reading this morning, uh, what we'll give our attention to, is uh, from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. So I'd ask you to have that in front of you and follow now as we give our attention to to these words. We believe that this is uh, not just the words of men, but these are the words of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us. They're reliable, they're true in every way, to every letter, and we want to give our full attention to it. So let's give our, give our ears and our hearts and minds now to the reading of God's Word. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose... Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, 
and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It's the word of the Lord. Well, we're right in the middle of this series uh, on the church, as Hal said earlier, and um, I'm not going to recap any of it now, but just to say we've been thinking about the identity of the church, the nature of the church, and we began last week to turn our attention to the nature of leadership in the church, and especially to think carefully from the Bible about what it means to be an elder or a deacon in the church. Who are these men? What do they do? What is their function uh, in the life of the church? But before we, before we began that last week, what I do want to impress upon us again is that we have seen that the church is precious to God. And so the church is to be precious to us as well, it's to be at the center of our lives. Now, there are two offices in the church. We, we talked last week about the office of elder. I want to talk this week about this other office in the church that's perpetual and ongoing in the life of the church, that's the office of, of deacon. And I want you to think about these two questions very carefully right now as you're sitting there. Who are deacons and what are they to do? Who are deacons and what are they to do? Now, I don't want to assume that we're all thinking on the same track with those questions because we don't all come from the same place. Uh, I think this is actually a matter of some confusion uh, in the church at large. Now, a lot of you have been at Redeemer for a long time, or you've been in really good churches somewhere else, and you've gotten in your, in your hands, in your toolbox, a good working biblical definition of what deacons are. But I, I don't want to assume that all of you have that, because I think there are two very different but equally wrong views of how deacons are to function in the church. And some of you have experienced either or both of these, perhaps. Uh, the first error is this idea that in some churches, deacons are simply the church executives who run everything. But another error is that, that deacons are little more than building or property managers. Both of these are wrong. Both of these are sub-biblical. Now, in fact, uh, deacons do have very important role in the life of the church, and Inevitably, if a church owns a building, has property, deacons inevitably spend time, probably more time than any of them would like, tending to the needs of, of the building and of the property. But fundamentally, at the core, the Bible does not call deacons to be church executives who run everything, nor, do they, nor does the Bible call deacons to be merely property man- managers. The Bible calls deacons to something much greater, much more difficult And it sets men apart to do this work. Now, they certainly, um, you know, there are a lot of things that that a lot of us can do in the church, right? That, That don't require ordination, that don't require special giftedness from the Holy Spirit. So as we talk this morning about what deacons are called to do, and I'll emphasize this at the at the end again, but let me say it at the front here. If deacons are going to be free to do what deacons are called by God to do. That means that a lot of the rest of us need to step up. That there are lots of opportunities, lots of of needs for any number of church members to see and meet and enter into. 
things that don't require you to be set apart as an elder or a deacon. And so we need to be, all of us as members of Redeemer, sure that we're keeping deacons freed up to focus on the things that we'll talk about them needing to do. But if this is going to happen, a lot of the ordinary stuff of church life needs to be done by some of, some of you who are not elders and deacons. The Lord's given you gifts for the good of the church. And he's given you those gifts so you can build the church up and cause the whole body to function better. So we need to talk this morning about what it means for deacons to serve in the church. Who are they? What are they called to do? And this passage from Acts 6 is one of the places in the Bible that really helps to shape the way we think about this. I want you to notice how this historical account, Luke is this, uh, Luke is this physician disciple historian who's writing for us an account of the way the Holy Spirit was at work to build the church after the days of Christ's resurrection and ascension. And I want us to look at how this particular account helps us to think about our deacons, to think about their function in the church, how it helps you to think about this as you think about nominating men to be deacons. So let's look at this. uh, First of all, look at verse 1 again. Here's the setup. Luke tells us, sets the stage by saying, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. All right. Now the church was growing, first of all. You see here in Acts 6 that the church was growing. In fact, it had expanded from 120 or so believers to over 5,000 in Jerusalem. And with this wonderful growth came growing pains, came difficulties, came struggles for the church. Look again at the specific need they were facing. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, here's what's going on. You can read back in Acts chapter 4 that there was this incredible spirit of generosity that developed in the early church because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their midst. Those who had possessions sold things that they had, gave away things that they had, brought them to the the apostles, and then the apostles distributed according to the needs of the church to those who had needs. And so we read in Acts 4 that, that there was no one who went without because there was such a spirit of generosity in the church that those who had were willing to part with their possessions to give to those who didn't have. And there was there was provision made in that way. For the needs of God's people. Now, one of the things that had happened here in Acts 6 is there were two groups of people. As the church had grown, it had also grown in diversity. And there were believers from Jewish background and there were believers from from Gentile, Greek background, pagan backgrounds. And that's what you find here. The Hellenists are these who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, who were not probably from Palestine, from uh, from Jerusalem, from that area. They're from other, other regions from other backgrounds, Greek-speaking backgrounds, but they'd come to faith in Christ. And there were also the Hebrews, we read, those who had grown up in Jewish backgrounds, probably grown up in Jerusalem or areas around Jerusalem from uh, Aramaic-speaking, Jewish-speaking backgrounds, and they had also come to faith in Christ. So you have in the church these groups of people with very different backgrounds, and a dispute arises. Because in this daily distribution of food and provision for the poor, One group of people was being overlooked. Some were being provided for, some not so well. In this case, the widows who came from the Hebrew background were being provided for, but the widows from this Greek background were being overlooked. 
They had needs, just as the Hebrew widows, but they weren't being provided for. Now, disputes arise quickly, don't they? Conflict quickly bubbles up, and that's exactly what begins to happen here in the early church. And so there's a mercy problem, there's a mercy need, but underneath it, can you begin to feel what also is going on? There's racial strife. There's relational tension. There's disputing. There's grumbling. There's quarreling. There's a mercy need, but under the mercy need, there's all kinds of other problem that's brewing. As the church grew, the needs grew as well. And there was this mercy need, but there was the need under the need, which was the need for what? For unity. For unity in the body of Christ. So these original deacons, and this is true for the deacons who serve our church, They had a very difficult practical problem to address, but they had really an even more difficult problem underneath that, which is to come in and heal this wound in the church and to promote unity and peace and love in the church that was increasingly diverse. Now, this is something we deal with too, isn't it? We want the church to grow, and and it certainly has grown. But what happens as the church grows? More people, more diversity, more opportunity for conflict, more opportunity for disagreement, more opportunity for disunity to break out. And so we we want to, to recognize where there's been growth, and we want to praise God for that. Now, I, I, I think this was true 15 and a half years ago when Redeemer was planted. There were differences between people because people are sinners wherever they go. But as a church grows, and as it grows numerically, as the church was in Acts chapter 6, there's increasing opportunity for disunity. There's increasing opportunity for conflict. So growth is something we should want. Diversity is something we should want. We should be praying for a more and more diverse congregation, racially, ethnically, socioeconomically. Praying for a church that more and more reflects the, the complexion of the kingdom of God. But let's not be naive. Let's remember that under the grace of God, we need more. The church grows. We don't grow in disunity, but grow in unity, grow in love, grow in generosity. So what we see right off the bat here in Acts 6 is that as the church grows, there are new temptations and new challenges that creep in. And what happens is the command of Ephesians 4 to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace becomes more important, more important over time. Now, the meeting of practical needs, here's what I want you to see as we look at this situation here. The meeting of practical needs, in this case, the meeting of the needs of these widows in the church is really an issue of guarding the unity of the church as well as expressing the mercy of God. And here's the point. The church, the church is at war. I don't know if you think about that very often. But the church is under attack. The church has an enemy that the Bible says prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who, who he can devour. And he's looking to devour you if you're a Christian. He's looking to devour the church because he can't get to Christ He wants to get after his bride and destroy her and take her down. And you see in Acts, there are a number of ways he does that. You see in chapter 4, he tries to do it through persecution. He sends persecution at the church. 
Maybe that will make them fold. But actually what happens? The Lord uses persecution to scatter the church, scatter the gospel, build the kingdom of God. He's still doing that. You look in Acts chapter 5 when this, this situation with Ananias and Sapphira, Satan tries to use sin to destroy the church. I'll put these people in the church who are sinful, who don't care for the Holy Spirit, who don't fear the Lord, and I'll try to disrupt the church through them. But what happens? The Lord actually deals with that sin, judges the church, and increases their their fear of the Lord, their love for for Him. And here in chapter 6, Satan's at it again. I'll sow disunity. I'll cause a grumbling. I'll I'll cause a complaint to come up in the church. I'll turn them against one another. I'll cause a split. And that will be the way I take the church down. Now, by the way, I hope you understand how toxic division is in the church. And I want to say, I want you to see in Acts 6, this is a device of Satan to destroy the church, if he could do it. To divide believers against one another, to cause some real issue to come up, and to divide them and separate them and divide and conquer them. And I, I want to say to us this morning that if we are letting divisions grow in the church, then we're in cahoots with Satan. Then we've sided, we're being used by him against Jesus and his bride. Because that's one of his main strategies to tear the church apart. So let's not, brothers and sisters, be ignorant of his schemes. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 6. This need among the widows was an extremely important need, and it was crucial for the church, especially the leaders, to find a solution to it. But they had a dilemma, and this is the second point. There's this need, firstly, but they had a dilemma, secondly. The dilemma you see in verse 2, beginning in verse 2, because here's what it was. They, the apostles deeply cared about the poor. They cared deeply for these widows. They wanted to see the gospel spread. They wanted to see the needs of the poor met. We see in Galatians 2 that Peter and James and John, who are the leaders among the apostles, go out of their way to charge Paul and Barnabas, be sure as you go out preaching the gospel that you remember the poor. And Paul and Barnabas say they are eager to do that very thing. So we know that the apostles are deeply concerned for the poor. And so as we see what they do to to come up with a solution for this need, let's not think for a minute that they didn't care about the poor. It's clear that they did care about them, and they had been caring for them, but here was their dilemma. They had a different calling. They'd been called by the Lord very specifically, and they understood that they needed to stick to this calling. You see it coming through in verses 2 and 4. They say it's not right that we should go from one service to another. It's not right that we should set aside the preaching of the Word of God to, to meet this practical need, to serve tables. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, what could the apostles have done? They could have said, okay, here's the problem. We're going to take care of it. Were they capable? Of course they were capable. What would have happened if the apostles had set aside their ministry of preaching the Word and of praying for the people in order to meet this need? the consequences would have been disastrous because there would have been no more preaching of the gospel or there would have been less preaching of the gospel. Now, those of us who are pastors and elders need to learn from this. If God calls a man to preach and teach his word, that man better not let himself be distracted from it by anything. 
even good things. It's a good thing. It would have been a good thing for the apostles to devise a way to, to solve this problem. But it, was not, it would not have been right for them to let that good thing distract them from the thing that they were called to do, just to preach and teach the word. Here's how one author has put it. Church shepherds are so easily sidetracked. So many good things demand time and energy. There are always many people who need counsel, programs that need administering, and meetings to attend. Thus, the shepherd's time for prayer, Bible study, and teaching the Word of God is slighted. So church shepherds, pastors, elders, must radically insist on a schedule that affirms the spiritual priorities of prayer and the ministry of God's Word. The deacons of the church also need to fix these priorities firmly in their minds. And you see in the text that this pleased the whole gathering. The whole church recognized and affirmed these priorities. So here's the question. If the apostles need to stick to the ministry of the word and to prayer, if pastors and elders need to stick to shepherding the flock and praying and preaching and teaching, then who's going to deal with these needs that are so crucial for the unity and health and and building of the church? Well, this is the situation that gave rise to the deacons, the beginning of the deacons, the birth of this office in the church. The seven, you see here, who were appointed are not called in this passage deacons. But I think it's very clear that in the division of labor that that arises here in Acts 6, what you have is the foundation of what later develop in the New Testament as these offices of elder and deacon. The apostles saw their priorities on the one hand, but they also saw the needs of the church. And seven men were chosen. And and if you notice, they all have Greek names. These are Greek men who can understand the situation of these Greek widows and minister to them effectively. These were the first deacons. And notice how carefully they were chosen. Look there again in verse 3. And what we get is a summary of the qualifications for those men who would serve as deacons in the church. Notice what they say. They tell the church, pick from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. A deacon needs to be a man who has a good reputation, a man of excellent character, so much so that everyone who knows him can see it, can identify it. That's a godly man. That's a man of noble character, of good reputation. He's known for his love for Christ, known for his love for the church, known for his love for his family, known for his Christian faithfulness. Secondly, they say that these deacons should be men who are full of the Holy Spirit. He's just built, they're building on their argument. Deacons should be godly men, should be men in whom you can see the fruit of the Holy Spirit, who love people who are joyful in Christ, who who are peacemakers, who are patient and gentle and kind and compassionate in their dealings with other people, who have self-control. And they are, thirdly, the, the apostles say here, to be men who are filled with wisdom. Deacons must be men who know God's word, who are rooted in God's word, who know people and who have the ability to take the Bible and apply it practically into the lives of people. And so deacons are to be men who are of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. I want to read to you from 1 Timothy chapter 3. I did this last week with regard to elders. But here's what Paul says ought to characterize 
somebody you nominate to be a deacon in the church. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Our book of church order sums it up really nicely this way. It says, To the office of deacon, which is spiritual in nature, shall be chosen men of spiritual character, honest repute, exemplary lives, brotherly spirit, warm sympathies, and sound judgment. Now, I... I'm pressing this because I want you to see, as we saw last week with elders, that the office of deacon is a high office. It's a spiritual office for spiritual men, capital S. Don't ever think otherwise. Deacons need to be men who are spiritually qualified because their work in the church is so crucial. They need to be solid men, Bible-saturated men, God-honoring men, compassionate, wise men, men who love Christ, who love His people love the Word, want to see the Word spread, want to do what they can to create traction for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and who love to promote peace and build the church up. And did you notice the result of all of this? If you notice in verse 7, what happens when we maintain the priority of prayer and the ministry of the Word? What happens when we have godly men serving as deacons? The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples grew greatly, increased greatly. And a great many of the priests, Luke says, became obedient to the faith. The word increases. The the kingdom of God is expanded. There are conversions. People are built up in Christ. Why? Because the apostles were preaching the gospel. And the deacons were caring for the church. Caring for the physical needs of people. And these two things coupled together, word and deed, caused the kingdom of God to explode, cause it to grow. The word spread. Because the deacons did such a good job focusing on these needs, with, especially within the church, that the ministry of the word of God was able to run and, and, and have success. And here's what I want us to understand as we think about deacons in the church. Biblical mercy ministry is intimately connected to the spread of the gospel. That's what we see here in Acts 6. Which means if we want to continue to see the gospel spread in Athens, it really, to echo what Hal said earlier, it is so important for us to choose God's men, the men He wants us to have. Because if we want to see the gospel continue to spread here in Athens, it means, among other things, a careful, thorough, biblical commitment to mercy ministry and to deacons to lead us in that. This is what our deacons are working hard to focus on. I want to brag on them as well as on our elders a little bit. To help you understand, if you don't appreciate it already, that God has given you godly men, men who love Christ, who love the church, who pray for you, who care about you, who want to be faithful to the Lord in your behalf. 
And our deacons are working so hard and thinking so carefully about what it means for them to be ministers of mercy, to care for the poor, to care for those who have needs. They understand this. We need to support them and pray for them. And they need other men who understand this and who are gifted and called by God to share in this work. So there's this, there's this God-ordained division of labor in the church of Jesus Christ. Elders and deacons have different responsibilities. And as we keep them clear, the kingdom spreads. The word grows. You, your pastors, we need to devote ourselves to prayer and to teaching and to preaching the word to you. Your elders need to devote themselves to shepherding you, to teaching you the word, whether it's community group or Sunday school or one-on-one as they get together with you. And you deacons need to continue devoting yourselves to relieving needs in the congregation, maintaining unity, promoting peace, doing what you can to help the spread of the word. This is your priority. And all of this points to a wonderful reality. God God puts the church under his word and gives the church men who can care for you, who can teach you, who can give the word of God to you. But he also gives men who can care for your needs, who can help lead you in mercy ministry. And all of this points to the fact that God is a God of mercy. We referred to it several times in our confession of sin this morning. We cry out to God as a God of of mercy, a God who is merciful and compassionate. We don't cry out to a God in hopes that we will get what we deserve, but we cry out for mercy, that God will not give us what we deserve, but in fact be gracious to us and give us what we do not deserve, which is his favor, his love, his blessings, his son. And so all of this points us to the fact that God is a God of mercy, One of the old Puritans, I I tried to track down the name and couldn't find it. I don't know if anybody knows who said it because everybody just says a Puritan once said. (laughs) That grace has to do with a man's merits, but mercy has to do with man's misery. When we say that God is gracious toward us, we mean that he freely gives us what we do not deserve. He freely gives us Christ and everything in him. When we say that God is merciful, we're saying that he doesn't give us what we do deserve, but instead enters into our need, enters into our misery, enters into our brokenness, enters into our lack and our poverty and our want, not to destroy, but to redeem and to renew and to build up and to rescue and to love and to to change. God is merciful. He brings us out of our misery and restores us. Now, I want you to think for a minute about who God is. Think about how great, if you can't stretch your mind, to think about how great God is, how infinite, how he is infinite, how he has no limits whatsoever, how he's eternal. He had no beginning. He'll have no end. How he's unchangeable. He is always who he is and he is unfailingly true to his character. And I want you to think about how high and mighty and majestic and holy God is. There's no sin in him. There's no imperfection. There's only perfection. There's only glory. There's only greatness. There's only might and and power and dominion. God is great and mighty and, and, and majestic and wonderful and glorious. 
And when we say that God is merciful, it's that God. It's that God who's merciful to people like you and me. It's that God who who comes down, that God that's so infinitely wonderful that you can't even begin to comprehend how wonderful He is, who has freely, willingly entered into all of the mess of this world, your mess, your brokenness, my brokenness, and He's done that in order to show mercy, in order to reveal that He is not only majestic and glorious, but merciful and compassionate to those who call on Him. And by sending His only Son into the world, He's entered into the world not to destroy it, not to give us what we deserve, but to show mercy. And deacons are agents of His mercy. The deacons of the church are agents of this mercy of this great God. To be a deacon is to be an agent of the mercy of God in this world and especially in the life of the church. What an immense privilege. What a privilege to be set apart by God for this great work. If you're thinking about nominating men for deacon, remember this. Deacons are agents of God's mercy. Agents of the kindness of God. Deliverers of God's compassion. Deacons have the honor of showing the church and the world around us something, something of how merciful God is. But I also want to ask you to think about this. As you think about the gifts and calling that God gives to some men to be deacons, I want you to think about what God has given you, the gifts that He's given you. If you're a member of the body of Christ, then the Lord Jesus has given gifts to you. And He's given gifts to you so that you would serve Him, so that you would serve His church. So what opportunities do you have? Don't just think about deacons who should do mercy. Think about deacons who should lead in mercy, which you should also enter into. What opportunities do you have? How can you be praying for the church? Who are the people you can help? Where are there needs that you can do your part to meet? Who are people who need encouragement? Are there children in the church who could use some aunts and uncles in Christ? What about single moms and widows who have all kinds of practical needs? What about people who are lonely and need friendship, need encouragement? What are the needs that you could help to meet? Don't just think about elders and deacons. Think about what Jesus has given you, both in terms of gifts and opportunities. Talk to one of our deacons. Find out where they need help. If you're part of the church, I think this is a wonderful thing for you to remember, for us to remember. If you're part of the church, you're surrounded by people for whom Jesus died, which makes serving a privilege, or it ought to, right? To remember that we're called and given the privilege of serving people for whom Jesus Christ died. Now, let me say this. Our deacons are stretched. They are. But they don't, and we don't, just want warm bodies. I've been in churches in my youth where about the only qualification for being an elder or deacon was willingness. And anybody who knew how those groups worked uh, quickly became unwilling. But what we want and what we need is for you to, to pray and to look through the lenses of Scripture as we've been holding it out to you 
We want God's men, the men of God's choosing. And so we want you, again, we want you to pray earnestly, to pray for deacons like we see here in Scripture, to pray for wisdom to recognize the right men. Ask God to give us men like this, men who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who are godly, who are wise, who are mature, who are concerned with your needs, who promote the peace and unity of the church, men who want to see, what, what, who want to see the gospel spread and are committed to doing whatever they can to help that happen. Look for men who are doing things that help the kingdom of God grow. Pray that the Lord will raise up men to be godly deacons in our church. And here's the, here's the point. Because we want the richness of God's mercy, don't we, to be reflected in the church to the world. So that the world can look at us and see imperfections, failings, flaws, sin, problems, but there is the mercy of God. I see God's kindness at work to those who are needy. I see generosity coming from hearts that have been awakened by the Holy Spirit and made alive. It's a powerful witness to the church so that what we find in Acts is that apart from the coupling of word and deed, the word doesn't spread. Pray for men like this and praise God for his mercy and look for opportunities for all of us to reflect that as his people so that we will know and all the world will know that we live only by the mercy of God. Let's pray. Lord, we... Thank you for your great wisdom, your great mercy, your great grace to us that you have redeemed sinners in Jesus Christ, that you have lifted us up and made us alive in him. God, we are not not dead or deaf to the fact that we have no hope in your presence except for mercy. We need mercy. And we praise you that we find mercy in the cross. That your justice has been satisfied as you have poured out your wrath on Christ, our substitute. And that in doing so, you have been merciful to us. And you have been gracious to us. You have lavished on us every blessing in him. And you've placed us in the church where we find in men you have called living representations of the fact that Jesus Christ loves us and cares for us and that God is merciful. So, Lord, we pray that you would continue to provide for us according to to our need. Please give us men who are called and, and gifted to be elders and deacons. Please be with those of us who are elders and deacons. Make us faithful men. Give us repentance and faith and humility and gifts for service. Lord, we pray that you would use this word uh, to help us and to guide us along. In Jesus' name, amen.